following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right. Well, the last five years in our church, we have grown more than any other time uh, in our history. If you were here for our anniversary, you heard a, a, a number that has just been staggering to us that 64% of our current membership has come to our church in the last five years. Uh, that is an astounding number. It's, it's, as a pastor, it's felt a little bit like treading water in the rapids of the North Umqua. If you've ever tried to do that, I don't recommend it. Um, it's, it's been a wonderful, joyful challenge. And throughout the time of our growth, it's become very apparent to us that we need to make sure that we're being very explicit and clear as we define our theology and our methodology or our practice of what we do, why we do, and and how we do it. And many of you who have been new, you've been asking these questions. You've asked, why do we do certain things? Um, why, why does CLF do this? Why don't we do it this way? And we have particular reasons why we've done all of these things. And some of you have asked, who've been with us for a long time, well, with all the new people coming, are we going to change what we've always done? And my answer to that is no. We're simply going to do a better job of defining what we've done for so long and continue to do the same things and by God's grace do them better as we get older and more mature. Um, so you've noticed, if you've been with us at all this year, you notice that that we were in a series in Genesis, and then we jumped out of that series, and we went to a series on Psalms. And then in the fall, we launched into a series on the Great Commission. And the primary reason for that was this very reason, was we have a lot of defining to do. <clears throat> we wanted to clarify for many of you how we see Covenant Life's fellowship's role locally in the work of the Great Commission, and how we think we accomplish that in very practical ways. And helping everybody realize that we're all part of this gospel mission, that it isn't just the pastor who's doing ministry. It's every one of us in our neck of the woods, in our businesses, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, serving Jesus and representing Christ, demonstrating and declaring the gospel. And so we've tried to think about how we think globally while we're acting locally. Now, this week, then, we're going to start a new series, a seven-week series called Shaping Virtues of the Christian Life. Now, I can immediately already feel it. People going, when are we going to get back into Genesis? We're going to be 15 years in Genesis. And people freaking out about getting back into Genesis, right? So can I just tell you, for one thing, we're going to get back into Genesis in January. We're going to, that's going to be our main book through 2024. By my calculations and my planning, and those of you who know me well enough to know I do a lot of planning, we have 28 sermons left in the book of Genesis. And you may think that sounds like a lot, but it's not. To cover the book of Genesis and the, from Genesis 17 to the end of the book, 28 sermons. So don't panic. We're going to get there and we're not ditching expositional preaching because we're doing some topical stuff. No, we're doing it on purpose. It's very intentional because there's a lot of clarification that needs to take place in the life of our church about who we are, what we are and why we do certain things. And so that's one reason why we're going to cover the seven shaping virtues of the Christian life. We could call them the seven shaping virtues of the Christian church. As a matter of fact, there's going to be on the book table, uh, Sovereign Grace Churches did some, has been doing something fascinating, is we've been coming up with seven things. You have one thing called seven shared values. And in the last two years, we came up with this idea called seven shaping virtues. 
And we're going to cover these shaping virtues over the next seven weeks. And you'll find this book at the book table. There's only about 25 of the, of these copies. I would encourage you to get them. This will help you follow along with our study as different guys preach on these particular topics. Because at the heart of CLF, at the heart of our church, really does stand this truth, that Jesus Christ is the Savior and King, and people who put their belief and trust in Christ will be transformed followers of Jesus, and they will display fruit that looks like Christ. That's really at the heart of who we are, and it's going to it's going to be seen in evidence in our in our lives personally and in our church. Our church is going to have a feel to it. And what you're going to find as we go through this series, I think you're going to find, if you've been with us very long, you're going to find each of these seven shaping virtues are part of who we are. And you're going to feel that as we study them. Shaping virtues, qualities of people who are transformed by Jesus. That's what we're after. So the next seven weeks, you're going to hear sermons on humility, which is today's, encouragement, Gratitude, generosity, joy, servanthood, and godliness. Now, for those of you to know, I have picked Bruce Wells to preach on godliness because he's probably the most godly guy in the room, right? So we're all feeling good about that one, right? I did not preach humility for me because I'm the most humble guy in the room. So that's what we're talking about today, all right? Okay, so this morning we're going to start with humility. And here's what we want to learn. If you're new with us, you should have got a bulletin. It's got a big idea on it. And here's the... Big idea that I want us to learn, and I hope we'll learn today. Humility is a chief virtue of the Christian life and church. God looks upon and gives grace to the humble. I want you to see that again and just read that again. Humility is a chief virtue of the Christian life and church. God looks upon and gives grace to the humble. All right, we got our Bible, so let's open them to Philippians 2. Let's stand together, and then we're going to read Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Now, just follow along as I read it. You can have it on your device or in written form, or you can follow along on the screen if you don't have either of those. This is the reading of God's Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, may you bless the preaching of your word and the hearing of the preaching of your word for the glory of Christ, the good of your church, and the advancement of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. 
I'm sure when you think of the term humility, you probably don't immediately think to yourself, okay, I got that. Right? Probably most of us are thinking, um, boy. So let's define humility just to understand what we're talking about. And I think you're going to find some interesting things in this, in this little brief word study. You're going to find in the Old Testament, in the language of the Old Testament, the, the term humility, it means gentleness. It means meekness. It's a lowliness of mind. It comes from a root word for poor and afflicted. In verb form, it means to bring ourselves low, to be brought into subjection. You'd read it in the Old Testament like they humbled themselves. They brought themselves low. In the language of the New Testament, which is Greek, it, it's, it's actually really interesting. It's a, a word that means a deep sense or a deep knowledge or a deep understanding of one's littleness. <laughs> I mean, contrast that with our culture, right? I mean, wow. It comes from a word that combines some interesting words. Um, not rising far from the ground, combined with the heart, the mind, and the faculties of perceiving and judging. So you could put it this way. It's a heart and mind and understanding that realizes it's not rising far from the ground. It's a word that indicates there's an understanding, there's a knowledge, there's a grasp of of something about ourselves. Other descriptions in the New Testament, uh, when it's acted out, are these kind of terms, and you've heard these terms, gentleness. Meekness is a term that's used. Um, it's intriguing because the word meek is a word that describes, if you define it biblically, it's, it's, it's a, it's the idea of you might have a horse that has been meeked, meaning it's a horse has power that's under control. Right? So this, so when you see somebody who has humility, they're generally gentle and they're meek. They've got power, they've got influence, but it's under control. It's not overbearing. Biblically, you're going to notice as we see this today, you're going to notice that biblically, humility always has a vertical dimension and it has a horizontal dimension, right? Vertically, how we relate to God and see ourselves before God and then, in, and then how we act out or treat others on the basis of this vertical dimension. Now, what's intriguing about is you can step outside the biblical definitions. When you do, um, like, like dictionary definitions, notice something as, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put, throw this up on the screen for you, but just historically, how this word has been defined. I find this fascinating. Webster's 1828 dictionary, which was done in 1828, right? Okay. Well, just in case you needed to know that, it, you know, okay. It says this. It defines it in ethics, freedom from pride and arrogance. Humbleness of mind, a modest estimate of one's own worth. In theology, humility consists in lowliness of mind, a deep sense of one's own unworthiness in the sight of God, self-abasement, penitence for sin or repentance for sin, and submission to the divine will. Okay, that's 1828. Now let's look at the current Webster's Dictionary, which says it this way. Not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive, reflecting, expressing, or offered in a spirit of deference or submission. Listen to this, ranking low in hierarchy, 
or scale. Listen to this one. Insignificant, unpretentious, not luxurious or costly. What about the Urban Dictionary, right? I look up words on the Urban Dictionary often because I'm like, what does that word mean, right? In this culture, here's how they define humility. True humility is to recognize your value and others' value while looking up. That's deep, isn't it? I mean, wow. It is to see there is far greater value in ourselves in who we can become, who others can become, and how much more we can do and be. To be humble is to serve others and be for their 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 good and your own. In other words, serve others so you get something out of it. I mean, okay, moving on. To be humble is to have a realistic appreciation of your great strengths, but also of your weaknesses. Now, do you notice a historical trend? In later definitions, humility is seen as insignificant. Ranking in low, ranking low in, in scale or low, ranking low or in scale. It is seeing that there's far greater value in ourselves in who we can become rather than a modest estimate of one's own worth or a deep appreciation of one's own unworthiness in the sight of God. And listen, if you're breathing the air of social media, and you're breathing the air of what this world is defining terms for you, what you're hearing is humility means you are insignificant and you should never have this quality in your life. Here's a question, though. What does God's word have to say? And better yet, let's evaluate a couple references of what God's word says, and then I want to look at, just briefly, a couple Christian heroes and hear what they had to say. Isaiah chapter 66, at the end of that verse, says this. This is God speaking. But this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, God notices, looks upon, and sees the one who is humble. If you ever want to turn the, the, the eyes of God your direction in favor, it's through humility. James puts it this way, but he, speaking of God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, meaning that term opposes means he stiff arms, holds at a distance, but God gives grace To the humble, you're going to notice God's help is on the side of the one who is humble and he is opposed to the one who is proud. So just in those biblical references alone, you get a real clear glimpse, don't you, of how God views humility. It's anything but insignificant. Augustine, the great pastor in the Roman Empire in the 4th and 5th century, wrote this to a student in a letter, and I I find this just outstanding. (laughs) If you should ask me, what are the ways of God? I would tell you that the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. Not that there are other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede 
all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. Andrew Murray, who wrote probably the quintessential work on humility in uh, Christian history, wrote these words about humility. Humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. I love that statement. Men sometimes speak as if humility and meekness would rob us of what is noble and bold and manlike. And boy, is that true in our world? Oh, that all would believe that this is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven, that this is the royal spirit that the king of heaven displayed, that this is godlike to humble oneself to become the servant of all. See, our modern world and culture sees humility as insignificant, ranking low, or something to be mocked or walked over the top of. But God looks upon the humble and gives his power and strength and grace to the humble. It is Christian nobility. It's the royal spirit of God's people. I mean, first, second, and third Humility, right? I mean, it is not too much to state. It does not overstate it when we would say that humility is the chief virtue of the Christian and the Christian church. And it would make sense because if you know what the first sin ever was recorded in the Bible, you would know that more than likely pride was that sin when Lucifer, the great angel of worship in heaven, arrogantly wanted to rise above the Lord and was cast out with one-third of the angels of heaven and Lucifer became known as Satan himself. You would understand, if pride is the, the root of all sins, you can understand why humility would be the root of all Christian virtue. Because God always works in contrast. Augustine rightly said this, it was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men angels. See, that's how significant this virtue is to the Christian life and to the Christian church. Now, let's turn our attention then to what we've read in Philippians and just let's see if you know. Let's see first the fruits of humility. What what happens when humility when, when, how do you know that you see humility? We'll see this in verses 1 through 4. Now, the church in Philippi was one of Paul's favorites. When you read the, 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 the book of Philippians, you're going to notice something fascinating, that Paul never rebukes this church. <laughs> he rebukes a lot of churches. He doesn't rebuke this one. He, he loved these people. He gives one correction to two women who were fighting and basically tells them, can you tell them to get along? But everything else in the book is this, you know, this display of gospel partnership. Chapter one, he talks about this, that he, he saw these people as true partners in the gospel. And he believed that God started a work in them and God would complete a work in them. And he encouraged them throughout the book to put their hope in God and the gospel of Jesus. And as you get to chapter two, he's just finished up chapter one with a strong exhortation to maintain walking side by side in the midst of gospel ministry together, even as the world around them is collapsing. As things are getting hard and they're beginning to suffer in the gospel, stay true to one another in the the gospel. Be side by side in the gospel. And so when you get to chapter two and you read this phrase, 
So if there is, Paul is talking about something that's already true in this church. You could take that phrase, so if there is, and you could say it another way. Since the gospel is true, and you are striving side by side in gospel unity in the midst of this suffering world, you're going to notice some things in your relationships. And you list off some things you'll notice in verse 1. Encouragement, he says, in Christ. Comfort in love. Participation in the Spirit. And affection and sympathy. In other words... These are realities in a Christian church when people are being transformed by the gospel and are walking in unity together side by side through the midst of suffering. And doesn't this sound like heaven relationships when you read it? I mean, it sounds like heaven. I mean, who doesn't need encouragement? So I tell you, that little 10-minute fellowship time, you have no idea how transformative that could be in someone's life when you look them in the eye and you say to them, how are you doing? And they just dump their life on you. And you then say to them, but can I just tell you, God is with you. And can I pray for you? Who doesn't need that? Who doesn't need comfort, affection, and sympathy when things are hard? Who doesn't need brothers and sisters? They can just kind of fall back on and say, oh, my word, I need some Just Can you just preach the gospel to me? What church doesn't need everybody participating in the Spirit's work of gospel ministry together? Right? This This is heavenly language that Paul is saying. This isn't reserved for later. This is a, this is not something that's possible. This is something that can in reality be lived out. Paul's point is, that the church in Philippi is that heavenly relationships and unity are possible because the gospel's true. <laughs> because God is on the throne. Jesus has come. He's ascended to the right hand of God. And where he is now, he has sent his Holy Spirit to fill each of us so that we might walk in this wonderful unity of relationships. That's why Paul continues in verse 2 when he says, man, make my joy complete by doing these things. I just want to tell you the joy that you have as a pastor. I can't imagine with Paul when he wrote this letter. If I were writing a letter to CLF, honestly, I'd write a letter like Philippians. I, I don't, I don't think of many things to rebuke. I can think of things we could correct. I can think of things might be just a little adjustment here, a little tweak. But there's a, there's a, a heavenliness about this. But notice how this works itself out. You'll see it in verses 3 and 4. You'll see the fruit of it. And what I want to do is I'm going to pull this out for a moment to let you see the don't do's. And then we'll look at the do's, right? So we'll see those together. Notice, do nothing, verses 3 and 4, out of selfish ambition or conceit. So in in contrast to walking in unity, encouragement in this, you know, encouragement in the spirit, comforting, all these things, participation in the spirit, all these things. In contrast to that. Don't continue. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. Do not only look out for your own personal interest, but so do in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves and look out for the interest of others. Don't don't be selfishly ambitious or proud. 
Don't only look out for your own interest, but in humility, consider others as more significant than yourselves and look out for their interests. Now, we could say it this way. Pride is selfish ambition that looks out only for our own personal interest. But humility considers others more significant than ourselves. And listen to this. Un, is is unselfishly ambitious. That's a phrase you probably never thought you'd see put together. Unselfishly ambitious about looking out for somebody else's interest. Or to go further, we could say it this way. When Christians live in pride, and CLF, you need to hear this. When Christians live in pride, they destroy the heavenly relationships that God intends and they ultimately will destroy their own local church. When Christians live in humility, they're encouraging, they're caring, they're partners in the Spirit's work and everyone is uplifted. Now again, I, I cannot tell you what a joy it is to pastor this church because that's we see these things in you. But as Paul would tell the Thessalonians, hey, listen, you're excelling in love, but let's abound all the more in this work of love. I would say let's abound all the more in this work of humility. Now we need to notice a couple things about humility before we. Move on. I want you to notice first. Do you notice the, the horizontal dimension? You see it? Mickey Connolly put it like this. Humility isn't simply a way we feel, but a way we act toward others. See, we could say and even think we're pretty humble people, but it will show up if we are or not. It's going to show up. It's going to show up in how we treat one another and how we respond when others treat us a certain way. So let's let's just ask some questions about this, all right? I mean, this is where you pull out your pillows and you put them on your toes, all right? Pastor's about to step on all of our toes. Get comfortable with it. It's okay. Because I've asked myself, and you're gonna, I'm going to give you personal examples, and you're going to go, yeah, you're a jerk, right? I mean, that's what you're going to say, right? Here's the question. How well do you respond when someone criticizes you for something you thought you were good at? Several years ago, I was in a conflict with a guy and, um, we could not get it resolved. And I was on the phone. I still remember where I was, I was driving out Diamond Lake Highway right by, I was going home, right by Phoenix School. You know, you guys know that's at? And the dude said this to me and I literally pulled over because I could not believe it. He said, you know, Dave, the whole problem with this, our relationship, you know what the whole problem is? I said, man, tell me. I would love to know. He says, you are a lousy communicator. I literally pulled over. I was like, I can do two things in this world. I can talk. I can teach a kid how to hit a baseball. I don't do much else very well. I can communicate. No, 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 you're lousy at it. 
How do you respond when people think that you're lousy at something you thought you were good at? I told a guy, you know what, you're revealing for me an area of pride. Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay, you need to stop. <laughs> right? All right? And I, I saw a moment of pride. Here's another question. How do you handle it when people do not honor you for something that you thought you deserved? In 2009, we were on the road to our second state championship, and it was awesome. And I'd coach my team, and I'd strategize in such a way that we would end up our league play because I knew that our league tournament was only first and second would play for the league title. So I knew that. So I played our whole season getting to that point, and we got beat early in the year by another school, and then we ended up beating them in that in the second game, and then we ended up beating them in the championship. And I played the whole year for that. We get to the all-league meeting, and, I mean, we're like, I don't know, we're 20, 25 and 2 or something. I mean, we're, it's, we had a great team. And I'm fully anticipating getting there. I'm going to be the coach of the year for the league, and I can go to the state meeting and say, our coach of the year was Dave York, and I can be a state coach of the year. I'm just I'm thinking in my brain. This is what a jerk I am, right? I mean, and I get to the meeting, and the first, they say, I so nominations for the coach of the year. And one of the guys pops off to the second-place coach. And they vote unanimously that this guy's the coach of the year. And I'm staring as I'm like, what, what just happened here? I, I did, I deserve, I deserve this. And I got in my car and the Lord just said, do you see that pride? You thought you deserved it. Can you sincerely celebrate the success of others or do you find something critical to think or say about them? How do you do that? Several years ago, I was sitting in a pastor's conference as a young guy got up to preach, and I instantly started thinking, why am I not there? I'm a good preacher. And I begin to get critical of this kid in my mind. And the Lord just began to say, You're not even listening to what he's preaching on because you're so busy being critical of him. You see your pride? See, I I can give you a lot of these things. Here's another one. How's your offense meter? You know what the offense meter is? Easily offended? Unoffendable. How easily offended are you when people don't, when people forget about you? They don't invite you to dinner or you check social media and you saw that they did some big event, but you weren't invited or they ignore you. How offended are you? An easily offended person is proud. How quickly do you dismiss others, other people's ideas and beliefs or opinions when they differ from yours? And we do this easily. And what we do with it, we don't necessarily do it outwardly. We do it inwardly. We begin to just... Or, you know, guys don't ever say this phrase, you know, to your wife. Well, you just don't get it. If I could explain it better. Yeah, yeah, that works really well. Um, I I don't recommend that. 
right? How quickly do you dismiss rather than listening? I find that Christians do this often when people disagree with them in morality. And we don't take the time to hear the story of how the person got to the point of their morality. This happened to me a few years ago. I was in a parking lot talking with a young guy that I'd been coaching for years. And this young guy finally began to divulge some things about his morality to me that I knew. And he just said, Coach, I want to tell you what happened to me. And he gave me a story. And it opened a door for me to share the hope of the gospel with this kid that I never had. But we're quick to dismiss, aren't we? Do you frequently compare yourself to others and feel inferior? Or let me take the other side. Or inferior. So you're aware, right, that the feelings of inferiority can have just as much pride in them as the feelings of superiority. Now, here's another one. How do you handle constructive criticism, feedback, or observations that others have about you that sometimes are unsolicited? Right. Last Sunday after Bob uh, was with us, we uh, we were, I went to a lunch where he was. And as I got to to the meeting, Bob hugs me, gives me a big old hug. And Bob just and I and I, this is how we are in Sovereign Grace. We're so comfortable sharing observations. Bob just says, I got some questions for you. I said, sure. And he just starts asking me questions about why we did what we did in our service and how he would do it different. Now, I'm in this culture of and I understand. I'm like, man, Bob, thanks for the observations. Can I just tell you why we do what we do? Yeah. Do tell. And I told him all we did and why we did what we did and what we're evaluating. Why we're, oh, great. You're on top of it. Super. But imagine, which I did 10 years ago, when I just said, dude, who are you? You're not even in Roseburg. I don't need your observations. Or the moment when I do go to my wife for a, how do you think that went? And she responds with, don't forget you ask me to respond. Right? Are you, are, okay, are you sure you, you're asking? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. And what you'll notice about these constructive criticism moments is, here's what I've noticed about humble people. Humble people don't have to do their own investigation. You know what that means? That when your spouse says to you, hey, I really thought your tone with the kids today was angry. You don't have to dis, like distrust what she's told you to say she's probably right. What we like to do as proud people is I'm going to go find all the people that might tell me otherwise or how many people can tell me the examples that I did this with. Proud people have a tendency to do their own investigation. I, I'm notorious for this and my life. See, humility is how we act toward others. Now, there's plenty there for us to repent of. Would you agree? Right? There's one other thing, though, about this horizontal dimension about humility that I want before we move on. Is this. Humility is not thinking less about ourselves. Humility is thinking about ourselves less. 
Everybody hear that? Look at the text. Look not only to your personal interest. In other words, our personal interests matter. They just don't matter as much as we think they do. Tim Keller put it like this. The thing we would remember from truly meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seemed to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. The fruit of humility is found in these horizontal relationships. You You'll see that very clearly in Scripture. Now let's look at the example then and the motive, because here's where you're at. And if you're where I'm at, this is where I was at on Friday afternoon, writing my sermon, writing all the questions. I am in repentance. I'm in a puddle, repenting before God and needing some help. Well, the good thing is Paul gives us help. Look at the example and the motive with me in verses 5 through 8. This is where we see the the vertical dimension. It's as if Paul stops and just says, hey, in your humility, this whole battle for humility and these heavenly relationships, just consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Jesus had this humble attitude. He was equal with God, but did not use his God-like qualities for selfish gain. Instead, he considered God's interest and your interest above his own, and the evidence of him doing this is he took on human flesh and was obedient to God to the point of death, and he even uses this little phrase, you see it, even death on a cross, to emphasize that this happened. And what Paul is doing is, he's saying, here's the divine example of humility, it's Jesus. And his challenge is, have the same attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, if you went through those questions with me, with me, you probably realize really quick, uh, I don't have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, consider Jesus, our king of humility, who led the way and has shown us how it's done. The one who laid aside heavenly robes for our humanity. The one who willingly gave up his life to fulfill all that God had planned. The one who is the loving evidence of God's mercy and love toward us. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, here's the example. And here's what we like to do in Christian circles. That's the example. Go do it. Friends, that is not enough. It's not enough. And here's the reason. If we just considered Jesus and took his example, every one of us are failing in it and we know it. We need, we need the motive of humility and we need the power for humility. That's why don't move on from considering Jesus without considering what he has done to make this even possible. I mean, consider Jesus, friend, because our sinfulness was so dreadful that it took his willingness to put on humanity to come and save us. Consider Jesus because 
your sin and my sin is so awful that it took the humiliation, even death on a cross, to make us right with God. Consider Jesus, because God's holiness is so fierce and our sin is so rebellious that it took the death of the Son of God to make it possible for us to be forgiven. As C.J. Mahaney wrote, humility is rightly, that's correctly, assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. See, do you see the motive and the power for humility? So here's a question for you. Have you measured yourself rightly in light of the cross? Have you measured yourself rightly in light of God's holiness and your sinfulness? The ultimate attitude of pride is to say, I don't need Jesus' death for my standing before God. I can do it on my own, thank you very much. The ultimate pride says, I don't believe his death on the cross was necessary for God or for me. And if that's you, listen, I just invite you to just humble yourself under the mighty hand of God who has sent Jesus to save you. Believe in Jesus and be saved from the pride that God opposes. And believer, listen, if you're a child of God and you say, no, I I put my trust in Jesus, then here's the question for us. Why would we ever walk in pride? See, do you see the vertical dimension of humility? We have the example, divine example. We have the motive and we have the transforming power to be humble. See, we can never be humble until we see ourselves at the foot of Calvary. We can never truly have true humility until we believe in the one who died on Calvary. That's why, listen, if you want to grow in humility, the best exercise you can do is stay near the Savior. In my studies for this, I ran across this lengthy quote by Mr. Spurgeon that is worth your consideration. He said, see the master taking a towel and washing his disciples' feet? Follower of Christ, will you not humble yourself? See him as the servant of servants, and surely you cannot be proud. Is not this sentence the essence of his biography? He humbled himself. Was he not on earth always stripping off first one robe of honor and then another till naked he was fastened to the cross and there did he not empty out his inmost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving up all of us, all, giving up for us all till he, they laid him penniless in a borrowed grave? How low was our Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorn crown. Mark his beaten shoulders still still gushing with crimson streams. See hands and feet given up to the rough iron and his whole self 
to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs and the throes of inward grief showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the thrilling shriek, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before you, before that cross, you have never seen it. If you're not humbled in the presence of Christ, you do not know him. You are so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten. Think of that. And as Jesus stooped for you, bow yourself in lowliness at his feet. A sense of Christ's amazing love for us has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. May the Lord bring us in contemplation to Calvary. And then position will no longer, then our position will no longer be that of a pompous man of pride. But we shall take the humble place of one who loves much because much has been forgiven him. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. Let us sit there and learn our lesson and then rise and carry it into practice. Let us sit here and learn our lesson and then carry it to practice. This is why, friend, stay close to the cross. Daily, remind yourself of the wonders of Calvary and the grace of God on display for you. Lord willing, you will grow like the Apostle Paul, who at the beginning of his ministry was the least of the apostles. At the end of his life, he was the chiefest of sinners because he dwelt near the cross. Start your days by acknowledging how much you need God and end your days by acknowledging when you lay yourself down on the pillow, you are revealing how limited and finite and small you are because you need to sleep, but the God of heaven doesn't. Invite others just to point out little dust particles of pride or dirt clods to say to you that that's, that's, that's pride and believe what they have to say without your own personal investigation. And then here, listen, pray, pray and pray because a spirit of prayer is a heart of dependence. Humility is rightly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. It will be evidenced by how we treat others and how we receive what others say to us or do to us. But it starts with how we see ourselves vertically. So let's lay ourselves at the Savior's feet. And learn our lesson and carry it into practice. Let's pray. I'm sure if you're like me, 
this week you you were convicted of sin and pride has been seen and Lord willing it is being seen as ugly in the eyes of God. <laughs> this morning would you just confess your sin to your faithful God. If you're a child of God, you have this promise. Agree with God about your sin and he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and will empower you to change. Lay yourself at the feet of the Savior. Confess your sin to God. Maybe this morning you don't know Jesus. You've been resisting Jesus, and this morning you've seen that as pride. It's the first sin. It's the root sin. And you will practice pride all the way to hell unless you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. And this morning, repent. Turn to Christ. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and rose again from the dead. Tell God that. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Father, we thank you for revealing to us the Savior, the humble one, the suffering servant, the one who traded the robes of heaven for a towel wrapped around his waist to wash disciples' feet. The one whom angels adore came to give himself as a ransom for us. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for thinking that our way is right. Forgive us for being easily offended. Forgive us for arrogantly dismissing others' opinions. Forgive us for getting angry with our spouses when they point out an area of sin or an area of strength that they think is a concern. Forgive us for mistrusting those whom you've sent to speak truth into our lives so much so that we believe we've got to go get more evidence. Forgive us where we have treated others with contempt. Forgive us where we've not been welcoming to others because they don't live like us, talk like us, or act like us. Forgive us for being at the foot of the cross and standing up and thinking how pompous we are. 
Forgive us for forgetting the purple drops that were poured out for us. <laughs> Forgive us for our entitlement. And we thank you for laying us bare, for doing the surgery that you have done upon our soul. And we thank you that our Savior is not only our example, but he is the one mediator between God and man. And not only are we forgiven, but we are cleansed and we are empowered to live differently. So, Father, help us. Help us leave here today and carry this into practice. For the glory of your great name. For the advancement of your gospel. Because it matters. And for the good of your church. Thank you for the good work that you have done in us. But Father, we ask you to help us to excel in this work all the more. (laughs) We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.